Welcome back to the Fireman Trainers Podcast. This is Season 4, Episode 5, published on October 4th, 2022. This episode, we'll be talking with Ed Monk about active shooter training and becoming mentally prepared. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and sit back, relax for this week's episode. This episode is brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Fireman Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage offer and their competitive pricing. If you're a certified instructor, then you can apply for FTA coverage. And remember, for listening to this podcast, you can get 10% off from your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is brought to you by NAG Tactical. As instructors, our students are always asking us what gear we use. I always tell them I use NAG Tactical. Do you know that NAG Tactical offers several designs, each with extreme comfort for all-day carry? The Revenant and Professional holsters have a patented tuckable design, adjustable cant, and secure twist release. My personal favorite is the KO-1. It is an all-kydex appendix holster that I can carry all day in comfort. All of NAG's holsters come with a two-week try guarantee and a lifetime warranty even on the clip. Remember to check out their Flex Mag Carrier also. It has a three-layer comfort backer and will accommodate several sizes of the magazines. Shop at natactical.com to find your next holster. That's the letter N, the number eight, tactical.com. We bring his podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Ed Monk from Last Resort Firearm Training. Welcome, Ed, and how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Very busy. That keeps me out of trouble. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's great. Well, we really appreciate you taking time to... Uh, talk to me today and uh, basically enlighten our instructors that are out there because I think your expertise in the area of active training can be very insightful for our instructors and knowing how they speak about things, how they can uh, help people be prepared for that um, you know, once-in-a-lifetime moment so that they're prepared for it. And really glad you got you able to make some time for us today. Sure. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give uh, our listeners a little bit of your background of what brings you uh, to, to being an active shooter expert in today? Well, I wouldn't know if I'm an expert. I probably just looked into it a little more than most people. But um, right out of high school, I went into the military. I did a career, a little over 24 years, active duty in the Army. For the last 20 of those years, I was an armor officer and in units, commanding units uh, that dealt with tanks and cavalry. Um, and it, it took me a little while after that to realize that that's really what brings my focus to this and how I approach it. Because what we what we pay combat arms, military officers, army officers to do is to look at a threat or a potential threat and define it. What are its tactics, techniques, procedures? What are its weapons capabilities? What are its most likely courses of action? What are its strengths and weaknesses? And what is the environment we expect to fight that enemy in? And once we've defined that, then we develop the best operational plan that we can to quickly defeat that enemy with the fewest amount of casualties. That's what we always want to do. End it quickly with the fewest amount of casualties. And then develop a training program to train our fighters how to execute that operational plan that we just developed to defeat the enemy that we defined. So I retired in 2007 as I was getting out of the military and then entering my second career of teaching high school, which I did in two different states. I was getting told by my leaders in both the Army at the end and teaching school when I started of what, what, how we should react, what our policy should be to active shooters if we found ourselves in an attack. And it's what I was being told by my leaders was not, not only did it seem like it wouldn't help, but it actually seemed like it was counterproductive, like it would make it worse. And so that's what got me 
you know, sometimes you don't agree with something. It's like, well, maybe I don't fully understand it enough. So I delved into it and started researching about 14 or 15 years ago. Um, and so then I started trying to find training on it. And most of the training that I found, I didn't really think was that valuable. So that's why I started developing my own training. So that's how I've gotten to where I am now. And then what keeps driving me is the frustration of um, the whole time I've been doing it, but long before I've been doing it for 30 years in our country, we're, we've completely failed at it. We keep getting bad results because we keep employing the same plans that get us those bad results. And it's just frustrating that we see that what we're doing is absolute failure, but nobody wants to change what we're doing. So that's what keeps me driving forward. Well, it's, um, it's unfortunate. We got to have topics, you know, like active shooters in you know today's world, but at the same time, it's a reality of it. No matter how much uh, we wish something wouldn't be there, there's still going to be evil. There's still going to be people out there that wish us harm and being prepared for it is, uh, what we try to do as firearm instructors. Well, yeah, in our lives in general, and I always try to use William April's quote of, you have to admit and accept the world is not as it ought to be. I, I wish we lived in a world without burglars, but I have locks on my doors. Mm -hmm. and I wish we lived in a world without drunk drivers, but I have seatbelts and airbags in my car. So it's okay to wish the world was better, but we got to treat it and, and prepare for like it is if we want to be adults about it. Mm -hmm. And for this active shooter thing, far too many leaders are not being adults about this. Definitely. And one of the, one of the things we want to dive in today is talking about the mentality behind active shooters, because a lot of people, just like you were talking about, you know, talk about the result or how they're going, going to respond. But I think it's also extremely helpful in understanding what drives the people to do this and how to go along, interrupt their plans as quickly as possible. So could give us a little bit of background of what people's or what the active shooters, uh, rationale or their driving force is behind? Well, I mean, and I'm not an expert on their motivations. There's different theories out there, but one thing I've heard that kind of makes sense to me for most of them is that they have a perceived loss. Now you may not agree that it's a loss, but to them it is. And so it matters. Now that could be their parents getting divorced or a, a girlfriend breaking up with them, a teacher treating them bad, failing out of school, uh, any, any number of things that seems like loss of a job seems like a failure or a loss to them. Um, and they just, well, I'm hurting. The world has done me wrong. Therefore, I'm going to hurt, hurt the world. Um, that seems to be the motivation of a lot. of them. Mm -hmm. How do you go along and interrupt their motivation? Yeah. I don't know. And, and that's, um, I'm not an expert. I don't have the foresight to look into how do we interrupt their thought process to prevent it. There are people out there doing that. And if you watch the news, we do catch quite a few of them. And unfortunately, that's always on page 5C. Mm -hmm. uh, when, we, when we interdict and catch somebody, and so now they didn't hurt anybody, but they're going to spend a lot of the rest of their life in prison. I wish that was on page 1A because that might be a deterrent to some of the knuckleheads thinking about it. But if, if you, because I study this, I think I see more than normal people. We do amazingly catch quite a few of them before, before they act. And I'm all for that, but there's, I don't know any way to catch them all. So I'm more specialized and spend my time on for those that do get to the execution stage. How do we most quickly stop? Yeah. When you go along, think about it. If somebody, if you were in school and you get a 99 on a test, 
that's a, you know, that's a straight A, you know, I mean, you missed one, one out of a hundred questions. That's pretty darn good. When we're talking about active shooters, you've got, it's a hundred percent kind of game, because if we miss one, one person in there, then that one person has the opportunity to go along and recap uh, chaos on a group of other people, you know, innocent people. Yeah. And that's what Matt's, 30, that's what makes it 30 so or 50 people and negatively affect the lives of hundreds. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like you said, you know, the 99 other ones or 999, uh, other people, other shooters that got intercepted that are spending time in jail or getting, um, you know, mental counseling, you know, you'll never see, see that because they never shot anybody. All they did was get picked up for this problem or that problem. So very, very insightful for it. Well, how do you go along and educate people? Um, and I'm thinking specifically businesses, churches, schools to be prepared or want to be prepared for it over and above just, uh, you know, doing, doing a simple lockdown. How do, how do you approach those kind of issues? Well, at first, I, I, I try to educate them about the threat and the environment of the attack so that they better understand it. You know, if, if what is coming is a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you don't want to be preparing for the Geico lizard. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of organizations, they have a plan that they've been told by the state or by their higher company, you have to have a plan. So they search online and they find one and they satisfy the requirement to have a plan, but they haven't gone through the process of wargaming it and saying, will this plan, A, do people know it? Will they execute it? But will it actually help other than punching holes in it and put it in the three ring binder? So I try to show them what the active shooter will actually look like, what, what's happened most often in the past, which helps us predict what's most likely in the future. And there are some differences when you look at things like schools and churches, the shootings are different. The shooters are different. Uh, and even within schools, a high school shooter is quite a bit different than an elementary school. So you kind of help them more narrowly focus and where the shootings start differ, you know, based off whether it's a church or a high school. So you help them better come to grips with what's most likely to happen with them. And you got to show them real examples. So they see the, the, the badness in it, the, the, how deadly and violent this is. So if, if they're not willing to admit how deadly and violent this is, they'll never make a plan for it. And then we talk about the three organizational options for response and the three individual options for response. For organizations, the only three I see are call 911 and wait, and that's probably what 95% of our organizations use, um, have a cop somewhere on the property. You know, churches will hire an off-duty cop. Uh, schools will have SROs. Some businesses, hospitals might hire an off-duty cop. And then option three is simply allow the people that are already there to defend themselves. So if it's a business, employees and customers, if you're a business that has customers in your building. If it's a, if it's a school, then it's the employees. If it's a college, then it's employees and of-age students. Whoever's already there, just let them defend themselves. And so what I I show those three options and I say, okay, now it doesn't matter which one of these three options you choose, church, business, school, um, they all work the same. They all work equally well and will give the same result on any given day, except that one day that the shooter shows up. On that day, you'll have draft. And so I show them, I show them a list of what happens when you call 911 and wait and, and how you have double and triple digit victims, if that's what you do. Because of the time and math thing, if if your if any organizations must have a nine one one call to put their plan in place to stop the active shooter, then they're guaranteed double digits. 
by math, because by the time the first 911 operator gets the first call about that shooting, they will already be past 10. Mm -hmm. And then by the time the first cop shows up because of that 911 call, you're probably going to be past 20, but I can guarantee you, you'll be in double digits. So if you don't want double digits as your end number, 20, 30, 40, whatever it'll be, then you should never have 911 as a solution to stop it. Well, then what about having a cop there? And a lot of schools that I talk to, several of, Ed, you know, we, we want to hear you talk. We're interested in what you have to say. But just so you know, we have an SRO, so we're, we're safe. We're okay. It's like, oh, really? So I show them, you know, three school, 10 schools that were attacked by students of the school, the students who knew the school had an SRO, and they attacked anyone. So it's not 100% deterrent. And then three schools that had a very high victim count, even though they had an SRO somewhere there. Mm-hmm. Having somebody with a gun somewhere on the property is not good enough. Somewhere in the building, somewhere on the property is not good enough. The only way you're going to get a low number is if the person that's going to stop it is close enough to see it or hear it. Now, I'm not a school resource officer, but I substitute as one periodically. And where I am, we have three elementary schools, and they're pretty darn small. But elementary school attacks are most likely going to start in the entrance or out on the playground because elementary shooters are outside, not students. They're not related to the school. So even though our schools are small, if I'm in the front entrance office area and the shooting starts in the playground, I probably won't hear it. By the same token, if I'm out watching, guarding the kids at recess on the playground and the shooting starts at the front entrance, I'm probably not going to hear it. So just having somebody with a gun somewhere on the property is not enough. I only know of two SROs at schools that were close enough to hear or see the shooting when it started at a school. So so I simply show them that. And then I show them the magic. I show them if the people that are there simply protect themselves. Um, That's where the magic happens. If in 20 attacks in in our nation, 18 of them in which the person who stopped it was close enough to hear it or see it, had a gun and acted aggressively, we have single digit victims, zero to nine. That's 18 out of 20. That's a 90% success rate. We really ought to pay attention to things with 90% success rate. Mm-hmm. And why that's magic is if the person who's going to stop it is close enough to hear it or see it, we eliminate a lot of things that take a lot of time. We eliminate the need for a 911 call. We eliminate the need for a police radio dispatch. We eliminate the need for the police to travel, for the police to enter, and for the police to close the distance. We eliminate all that time, and that's the only way we can get it get the numbers down low into single digits is if we stop him very quickly. And everything has risk. So, well, we don't want people here to have guns because that's risky. And and there is some risk there, but you know, what's Mm -hmm. also risky people not having guns. Um, No one had a gun in Uvalde school. So they're at 30 something. I don't know the final number. They're they're well over 30 people shot. So yeah, letting cops have uh, a week after Parkland, Two cops' guns went off inside of schools, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast in California. So, yeah, having guns on campus, there is risk there. I'm not saying there isn't, but not having a gun on campus when the active shooter shows up is going to be catastrophic. Hey, Ed, and l- l- yeah. l- help me on the math. What do, What's your figure that you found out when you're talking about number of deaths per minute? And waiting for a response time when we're talking nine one one, or waiting for you know school resource officer to you know get to that area so they can they can act. What's what's the figure that you use? Well, as I look at it, 
an average rate of fire over an attack is one person shot every 10 seconds or okay. six people shot every minute. But that's an average over the entire attack. And it's not constant. Um, he's going to shoot a lot more rapidly in the first minute of that five minute attack than he is in the last minute when it's harder to find new people. So the average might be one every 10 seconds, but he's really shooting somebody every two to four seconds in the first minute, maybe every 30 seconds in the last minute. Uh, and you see that that it, it, it shows out very clearly in the in the Parkland attack. Mm-hmm. So the first 911 call on average is going to go in one to four minutes after the first shot of an active shooter attack. So you're you're almost guaranteed to have double digits. And when I do the presentations, one of the things I can do, I've got a video of the uh, Fairchild Air Force Base um, shooting where mm-hmm. they they made a video of the the shooter's movement timed with the 911 call and the first night, and that one went in quick that went in in 46 seconds which was really quick from the first shot and that's pre cell phone days at 46 seconds the first 911 operator hears a person in the hospital say there's somebody in here with a shotgun shooting people and right at that moment the 10th person is shot so 911 is going to get you 10 Guaranteed. And probably by the time the cops get there, and they got there very quickly. Andy mm-hmm. Brown got there very quickly, and they still had over 20 because math and math is just tough. So we've got to eliminate that 911 call if we want lower numbers. And then people will say, well, my God, you know, citizen doesn't have the training that cops have. Well, that may not be a bad thing because armed citizens have never shot the wrong person responding to an active shooter. Mm-hmm. Cops have several times. Cops have killed other cops by mistake while responding to an active shooter. And when I show them the list of 18 successes, there's more non-cops that stop the active shooter early than cops. Now, that's not because non-cops are better. It's because non-cops are there. And that's what that's one of the three. Are you armed? Are you willing? And are you there? Um, active shooters are just a subset of violent criminals and violent criminals generally don't start their violence right in front of a uniform cop. So usually if a cop stops it, if a, if a on duty uniform cop stops it, it's many minutes after it starts. And it's just about time and math. It's not about anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, so that's no. what I show them. And then in, in, so that's the individuals call, uh, call 911 and wait organizational, have a cop somewhere on the area or just let the people there protect themselves. And then individually, it's uh, fight, flee, barricade. The government and Alice teaches run, hide, fight, and says fight only as a last resort, which I absolutely hate. Fight is the first thing we should consider. Fight's best for humanity. The only way to end it quickly is to fight quickly. So if you're capable and willing, then fight. If you're not, then flee by any means necessary. And then barricade is not a choice. It's what you're left with if you don't have the choice to fight or flee. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I go along and you know tell people is it's been statistically proven that it's very hard to shoot accurately when you've got people throwing stuff at you or they're trying to tackle you and do those those types of things. I mean, there is a risk with it, but it's extremely difficult for people to shoot while you know they're also trying to dodge things that are coming at them or people are are you know just um, bum rushing them and tackling them to the ground. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And so that's why it, and so listen, people say, Ed, you push the gun thing. Well, no, what I'm actually pushing is fighting quickly. You can fight quickly armed and you can do it unarmed and and both can be successful. Armed is much easier and has a better success rate, 
But if you can't be armed or you simply won't be armed, then you got to fight anyway. And and so I can show them successes in unarmed people fighting back against the active shooter. I'm I'm not pushing guns. I'm pushing a low victim count. The only way to get a low victim count is to fight back quickly. There are Mm -hmm. two ways to fight back quickly, armed and unarmed. Armed is by far the best, but it's not the only way. So fight back quickly. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, yeah. Is fighting back unarmed dangerous? Of course it is. But cowering under a table is a lot worse. And that's exactly what the teacher in Uvalde told his kids to do. Gather under the table, which is the same thing the teacher at Columbine told the kids in the media center to do. And we, we say, well, no more Columbines. We learned our lesson. Well, apparently we haven't. And I've told this story many times. I had one superintendent stop my presentation when I suggested we have to fight back. We wasn't even talking guns. We have to fight back. Nope, this, you stop your presentation. We will never advocate violence in this school. Well, see, you will advocate it because you'll scream into the phone. If you're still alive, you will scream into the phone to the 911 operator to please send somebody with a badge and a gun to come do violence to this person killing your kids. But your solution's 10, 15 minutes away. You don't want the solution there. You don't want the capability of doing violence there. You want to outsource it to somebody who's 10 or 15 minutes away. I don't know why people can't think through this. Well, and at the same time, yeah, at at the same time, I think they also have to realize and accept that if they're going to go along and, you know, as you said, outsource to somebody who might be five, 10, 15 minutes away, that they're accepting those, you know, casualties, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, as you said, math and, you know, take it from a military standpoint, you know, that, you know, you go into a certain battle, you're going to have, you're going to have some casualties. You try to minimize, you do everything else like that. But at the same time, when you do that, you also have the quick, the evac resources to yeah. evacuate the, uh, the injured. And you've taken that all into consideration before you execute a plan. And that's one of those things where that superintendent m- might not want to advocate violence to the kids, except for if their life depends on it, and, you know, violence is, is a, a solution to it and you've, you've got to make sure they get over that that whole thought pattern and be ready to defend themselves because it might be the last thing they do yeah it's tough i was at the little over a year ago now the national school safety conference in new orleans and they had a panel of all superintendents probably 10 or 12 of them up there and i remember the one i don't remember his name big guy and he said listen it's not our job to stop the active shooters that's why we have law enforcement and i thought to myself and that is why we keep getting 20 30 and 40 people shot that mentality of it's not our job, uh, we'll hunker down, call somebody and wait on somebody else. That's why we, that's why Uvalde got, people say Uvalde, you know why they got so many people shot? Because they didn't lock the doors. No, of course not. Had they locked the doors, they, they had glass panes. He had just shot his way right in. Okay, well, mm-hmm. he got in the building. They didn't lock the classroom. And that's why those kids were, were, were killed. If they'd have simply locked the classroom, really? Parkland shot 18 kids on the first floor through the doors. He was in the hallway, shot through the doors, and shot 18 people that were locked inside their classrooms. And according to alerts, first AAR on Uvalde, the walls were simply drywall. So he and he did shoot through the walls. So we want a simple solution. If we can just go down to Ace Hardware and buy a lock, we'll all be safe. Well, well, no. Um, Sandy Hook shot through the glass to get in there. Uh, Townville Elementary, his plan was to shoot through a window to get into the school. So. They're not, again, a lot of the military stuff, they're not wargaming this against an evil, thinking, creative, motivated enemy. Not too long ago, I was consulting and working with a school, and the principal was 
very proud of her school and she was walking me around and she was showing me how they invested over the summer into these really high expensive locks and they all had these fobs and they could open them up. And she said, you know, we, we keep our doors locked, not like Uvalde. We keep our doors locked. And their doors had a big pane of glass on the bottom and a big pane of glass on the top. And I point, I said, you, you don't think he would shoot through that? And she just stared at me and blinked like, but she didn't say it, but almost to say, well, that wouldn't be playing fair. Mm -hmm. Now we bought our locks. We've done our job. So that wouldn't be fair. No, they're not fair. They're evil. And we're not playing. Again, we're planning for the Geico lizard, but it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex that's going to show up. And we need, so I go into schools and I say, okay, and especially with schools, 95 plus percent are not going to have armed staff. I got that. Okay. I don't agree with it. But I got it. But there's still things we can do to teach people to fight back. And so one of the big things is, and I did it in the last school I, I consulted with two weeks ago, I brought in guns. Oh, my God. I brought in guns to school to show them how they work and to show them what reloads look like and what malfunctions look like, because I can show them several examples of active shooter attacks where people recognized reloads or malfunction and recognized them as uh, windows of opportunity where they knew the gun wouldn't work very long for a few seconds. And they took that opportunity to either fight because now it's, it's man on man, hands on hands. He doesn't have the advantage of the gun if it's not loaded or flee either one. But if, they, if, if a non-gun person doesn't understand that, um, then they don't know that there's a window of opportunity there. Yeah. And Sandy Hook, I believe he had something like six magazines with him, of which like uh, almost four of them had jammed halfway through. I mean, even though they were 30 round magazines, they jammed. And that's where if you go, if you can recognize a fire malfunction, it gives you that window of opportunity to rush them to, you know, go hand to hand with them, which you've got a lot better opportunity and chance than if, you know, it's a firearm against you. Yeah. Or to fight them in the doorway where you take away almost all of their advantages of the gun. But mm -hmm. In Sandy Hook, in the first classroom, classroom 10, one of the surviving children was a boy last name of Posey. And I've heard his mother, Mrs. Posey, speak at two alert conferences. And she said, of course, he, he depleted his magazine because he had to shoot to get into the building. Then he shot people in the foyer. Then he shot through conference room nine. Then he shot two adults and six students in classroom 10 before his gun went in. And Miss Posey says, we are not gun people. We don't own guns, but we have been shooting a couple of times with family and friends. And that little bit of exposure to my little six-year-old, he understood what a reload was. So when he went to reload, he ran out of the room and the other kids followed him. And every kid, 11 of them that ran out lived. Mm -hmm. So even a six-year-old who's never owned a gun before, just that little exposure, it's so easy to teach people about. Yeah. And I, I go along and you look at, um, fires and how common it is for businesses, schools, um, even your own house, you've got fire drills with young kids. So they know what to do in case of a fire, where to go meet them, uh, meet up the rest of the family, rest of school, all these different things are planned for. But when you go along and look at something like an active shooter situation, so much of it is just is to sit tight and wait for 911 to come, which to your point, if somebody told you to stay inside of a burning building because the firefighters are coming, they don't look at you like you hit three heads. And that's the type yeah. of thing that people need to ask, you know, why would we want to stay someplace and wait for them to find us if we know there's a danger that's, you know, lurking in the halls when we've got, you know, windows that we can jump outside or, or something along those lines and put more space between us and the threat. Well, I, I touched on it when you asked me how I got into this. So I, 
part of it is I, I'm a 42-year-old retired lieutenant colonel, but I'm a brand new snot-nosed uh, wannabe teacher, you know, rookie. So they're telling me the policies and they say, Mr. Monk, if you hear active shooter over the intercom, your job as the adult authority figure is to cram all of your kids as tight as you can into a corner of the room. And they didn't say this, but what my brain is thinking is, oh, so when he comes in my room, I have made his job as easy as I can possibly make it for him. And this, again, made no sense to me. I mean, the military is like, hey, you're fixing to get attacked. Okay, let's get everybody in a real tight group uh, before the enemy attack. It makes no sense. Mm -hmm. So I suggested, heck, I'm on the first floor. I got a big window. I can see the post office a quarter of a mile away. Why don't I get my 11-year-olds, get them out this big window and tell them to run to the post office? And they look straight at me. And this is master's degrees. So, Mr. Monk, we can't have our kids running away like that. It would take hours to get accountability. We just can't do that. That's crazy. So accountability was more important than they're thinking administratively about the mm -hmm. drill, not about someone's release. So I said, okay, if I got to keep the kids in the room, which I wouldn't have done anyway, then the, this don't pack in the corner to make shooting us easy. He can get two or three of us with one shot like he did in Sandy. Let's, if I got to stay in the room, let's fight him when he comes in. And again, they looked at me with a straight face and said, Mr. Monk, we cannot have fighting in our policy. Our insurance will go up. So that, <laughs> that's some of the stuff that got me looking into this, just absolutely craziness. Uh, and again, I would hope if parents heard that what their, the policy at their school was, if a fire, an actual fire broke out, that the, the teachers were to keep the kids in the room and we'll just see who gets here first, the firemen or the fire, you know, who knows, but we'll, We'll keep our kids here and see which one gets to us first. I would hope the parents would storm the next school board meeting and say, this is absolutely ludicrous, but they don't do it for the active shooter when they do the exact same. thing. We're going to stay in here um, behind walls that aren't bulletproof and doors that aren't bulletproof and just wait to see if the shooter gets to us first or that the cops get to us. first. Mm -hmm. It's absolute lunacy. This will uh, blow your mind, but when I was working in Columbus, Ohio, they had a big uh, blow up because parents went to the school board meeting and was complaining about the Alice training that their kids were receiving in the run hide fight uh, perspective because they felt that the their kids were being were being basically taught um, how to get themselves killed in the event of an active shooter and I listened to it on the news and I just kind of shake shake my shook my head. Because you realize that when you don't realize the actual threat and that the active shooter is not going to go along, shoot just the people that are, you know, attacking him. He, they're going to shoot everybody that if you don't do something, then you are going to end up being a casualty. And me as a parent, I definitely would not want my kids to be sitting there as sitting ducks. I would rather them try to run, you know, hide, you know, bite them, do whatever they need to in order to, uh, you know, potentially get away from that threat for it but that was one of those things that just uh heard it on the news and actually had these parents on the news stating that they didn't want their kids to be fighting back and using the alice training that the uh columbus public school was advocating so just just a crazy crazy thought process there yeah it you know if if you sit around and talk how do we protect the kids in school against fire we'd have a logical discussion we might disagree but we'd have a logical discussion if schools in houston Got, got together and talked about how we protect our kids against hurricanes. It would be a calm, rational discussion here in Arkansas, tornadoes. We would, you know, might disagree, but we'd have, a, but you throw a gun on the table and just absolutely lose the ability to reason. And I, 
it's crazy to watch it over the last 14 years. I had a principal. He's like, Ed, I hear what you're saying, man, but this this lockdown drill that you know we lock down and call 911. I've been in this school over 20 years, and it has worked really well for us. Well, of course, it's worked really well because he hadn't shown up yet. But how did it mm-hmm. work for Evaldi? How did it work for Santa Fe? How did it work for Parkland? How did it work for Stockton? How did it work for Columbine? Because those schools had the guys show up. And of course, you know, not putting your seatbelt on works great for every day the drunk driver doesn't slam into you. Um, but that, it's it's really frustrating, mm-hmm. um, and that's why we keep getting thirty. Unfortunately, yeah, it's 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 uh, really kind of unfortunate uh, when you go along and look at what the numbers are because you hear people complain about it. You hear people saying we've got to do something different about it, but then we come back and we do the same thing over and over and over again. And, you know, that's kind of the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah, we, we don't, they don't war game it against this horrible enemy that's coming. Again, we think locks will work. Uh, or what I found is everybody wants an easy thing. I'll get calls. Ed, come tell us how to keep our kids safe. Can't do it. Um, can't tell you how to keep anybody safe. I can tell you how to increase security and how to lower risk, but I cannot tell you how to keep kids safe. And here, this is just recent, the last six months, several calls. Ed, come tell us about if we have an active shooter, how to talk him down and de-escalate this. Nope, nope, that doesn't work. It's got, I'm not going to come recommend something to you that's got less than a 5% success rate. So I show them videos of uh, the active shooters and things they've written and things they've said either before or after their shooting that show this is a rabid dog. This, this is not somebody you reason. Um, in Parkland, uh, he only shot into three of the classrooms on the first floor, but he got 18 people in those three classrooms. Never entered a classroom, but one of the teachers in one of those classrooms said, I was trying to figure out what to do when he came in because she assumed he would come in and I would have too. And she said, I finally decided when he came in, I was going to stand up from behind my desk and yell, we love you because who could shoot somebody that, that, that loves you? Well, he could because he's a rabid dog and mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't think like you, but that's yeah, he, he shot his mother right before that. That's where he got the guns. So you go, you go along and think about, you know, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, well, that that wasn't Parkland. That was uh, Sandy Hook. Sorry. Sandy Hook. Well, yeah. and now Uvalde. But yeah, mm-hmm. many of the young ones shoot them. Yeah, and then um, I like. Well, have you ever seen the video of the Chardon, Ohio high school shooter at his sentencing hearing? Mm-hmm. I, I play that to show they don't think like us. They're evil. They're not like us. They're rabid dogs that, that they've got to be put down. That's how you deal with. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to reason with them. We just now, now that they have come with their plan and their plan is extremely ugly, but they're motivated to carry out that ugly plan. So we have to have a plan that's just as ugly in the to stop them in the first 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've got to do. And you probably know the statistic, but what's the statistic of the number of shooters that survive? Because I've heard that the majority of them uh, pretty much plan that, that this is going to be their last hurrah, you know? They're not, they're not planning on going to jail. They're planning on being taken out with a body bag with everybody else. I'd have to go back and look. I don't have it in my head because the last one I presented was on schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and school shooters are a little different. But, yeah, most of them plan on suicide. There's been three or four school shooters that I know of that, that said they planned on committing suicide. But when it came down to it, either they couldn't or their gun had malfunctioned. And now they had no way to do it without pistol whipping themselves to death. But none of them really plan, think they're, they're going to escape and get rid of, get, you know, get away with it. Some of them do escape temporarily, 
but they know when they fire their first shot, they're going to end that day in the morgue or the jail or in the hospital in route. But most of them, because they know their life's over, you know, and most, most of them are so young, who wants to spend the next 60 years in prison? So yeah, a lot of them clock themselves out. Yeah, the, the one the one point I bring up when I talk to people about it is one of the most lethal weapons during World War II was the kamikaze pilot. The the U.S. Navy lost more ships in that year leading up to um, you know, the uh, uh, dropping the atomic bombs and things like that to the, to the kamikaze because those people they weren't they knew they weren't going back. So no matter how many bullet holes their planes got or anything else like that, they just aimed it straight at whatever uh, ship they could and hit it. And when you've got a laser guided um, bomb, which was pretty much what the kamikazes were, um, it's extremely difficult to stop. Yeah, it's it's different. It's different dealing with him than it is the mugger mm-hmm. who wants to live, wants to get away, wants to escape and continue living his life. There's no. And I will hear people say, you know, we this is why we need the death penalty, dude. They're giving themselves the death penalty, so you know, let's <laughs> let's don't have a knee jerk bump reaction to this. Let's look at it truthfully. But again, talking them out of it, I just one of the other things I show them is uh, the San Ysidro McDonald's. A, a guy, a man, got up and tried to, hey, why are you doing this, man? Don't you don't have to do this. He shot him fourteen times, just just to show him that you don't, you know, I'm in charge of this. You're not in charge of this. Mm-hmm. Yep. And when it, when it comes to the criminal element, which, uh, you know, active shooters fall into, uh, they don't think like us, they don't have the same values as we have and, you know, whatever happens, um, you know, they're, they're willing to deal with it and, you know, could they have done something and made a million dollars doing something different? Yes. But they're not thinking rational like you or I do. And, you know, sometimes people get a little upset when I say it, but in most of these shootings, we've really lucked out. Um, if, if, if you take the average guy, if you go to shoot any kind of IPSC, IDPA, any kind of uh, Glock shooting sports, any of these, and you, you don't pick the best guy, you pick the guy or gal right about in the middle. You know, they're decent. They can handle a gun. If somebody with just that level of skill uh, went into, say, Parkland, it lasted five and a half minutes from first shot to last shot. Um, think about how many people, and don't, you know, don't even exaggerate, just how many people could you shoot in a building with 300 people in it in five and a half minutes, unopposed? with nobody opposing you, it's a lot higher than 34. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of these we've really lucked out because they weren't that aggressive or they didn't know how to make their dad's gun go bang. In Townville Elementary, luckily, he killed his father, took one of his father's handguns, luckily, and he wrote on it. was His goal was 50 or more, um, but luckily after he shot four, the handgun malfunctioned and he didn't know how to make it work. So it stopped at four. It it would have been a slaughter. There wasn't a cop at that school. There was nobody armed at that school. And he even wrote online before, this is going to be like shooting fish in a barrel. That was his quote. And it would have been had his gun not malfunctioned. We we've lucked out in these so much in a lot of ways. Well, one, one that we've lucked out a lot is we haven't had multiple shooters since Columbine. And if you would go along and okay, well, I don't have the same statistics you do. Okay. Well, oh yeah. Multiple shooters. We've had five. Um, mm-hmm. Columbine's ones, Jonesboro, Arkansas, which happened before Columbine, but we had the, the two radical Islam that attacked Garland, um, the draw Muhammad contest. We had the two radical Islam that attacked the, the uh, San Bernardino County building. Mm-hmm. And then we had the STEM school out in Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, where two students uh, went in there and shot that school up. Mm-hmm. But, but you're think- right. I'm waiting for a, I'm waiting for a uh, Mumbai and that's, 
that's going to be horrible when multiple teams show up at several schools in a school district or several malls in a city or an airport, a mall, a school. And honestly, imagine, and this is a common thing with active shooter attacks where over 98% of the time there's only one shooter, but most of, in most attacks, there are false reports of other shooters. So we now know the, the Las Vegas shooter, there was only one shooting from the 32nd floor, but seven other major casinos on the strip had reports of shooters in them. And then there were a whole bunch of other false reports, including the airport. So I'm, I'm thinking if I'm the city leadership or law enforcement leadership, and I get called, because this happened 10, 30, 11 at night. Hey, sir, ma'am, um, we have a shooting at this, at this outdoor festival by the Mandalay Bay. All right, I'm coming in. And then three minutes later, hey, now we've got one at MGM. What? All right, I'm on my way in. Three minutes later, now we've got one at Caesars Palace. I'm I'm thinking Mumbai. Mm -hmm. I would be thinking complex, coordinated, multiple attack. Thank God it wasn't, but that's mm -hmm. what I've been thinking. Yeah, it, it um, wouldn't take a whole lot of uh, brain power for somebody who could rationally plan out something. You know, as you said, you know, figuring out what the targets are and figuring out how to, you know, you know, divide, you know, separate, outflank, do all these uh, maneuvers to really uh create a high high death toll which is uh hopefully not not going to happen in my lifetime and of course the bad part of my brain is thinking there's going to be people that watch this goes oh my god how could y'all talk about that you're going to give them the idea it's like dude the idea is already out there mumbai happened when um uh, paris mm -hmm. twice it's, it's not like we're letting the cat out of the bag mm -hmm. um, but yeah. what we need to do is just be ready for it uh, whether it happens or not that's what we need to be ready for the tyrannosaurus rex not the geico lizard we need to make a plan for this. Yeah. And, well, and I think you bring up Las Vegas and one of the things that Las Vegas was a big, uh, uh, kind of success story is how the people that were, that survived, um, you know, that weren't shot, were able to go along and start doing improvised, um, uh, trauma care, you know, tourniquets and transport, transporting the hospital and things like that, because that's the one thing I always challenge people. You've got, you know, active shooter, you're going to go along and neutralize them. Great. But do you realize how many people could potentially be, you know, shot, wounded, that you'll need chest seals, you're going to need trauma um, care for, you're going to need tourniquets? Because when the police come in, their first goal is to neutralize the shooter. And the paramedics come in after they do, not not before the, the police get there. And those are things that, again, people don't um, plan for when they when their first uh, uh, first action is called 911, expecting them come rushing in immediately. Yeah, and solve all the problems. And when mm -hmm. I talk to schools and, and other organizations, I say we, especially schools, I'm like, we should be training trauma care. Yeah, the chances of you having an active shooter are in, infinitesimally small, but this is just a life skill. Your students and staff are more likely to use this in a car accident sometime well, in the a future. A bus crash, you know, something like, yeah. you know, you'd be on a school field trip and have a bus crash. and need it, This to, is a need good life skill. It doesn't, you know, and it's not that complicated and it's not that expensive. We should teach this anyway. It does come into play if you have an active shooter, but we should teach this anyway. Yeah, it's like CPR. It's kind of like Heimlich maneuver, all these types of things that, you know, 30 years ago, you know, they were just beginning to teach everybody about it. And now uh, everybody probably through their work through school has been exposed to Heimlich maneuver CPR. And we've seen great success when people have been at restaurants and somebody's had to do a Heimlich maneuver, or you've been someplace and somebody falls over in front of you, you can check their pulse and no pulse. And, you know, you can start doing, doing CPR fairly quickly. And you do that not because you doubt the, the, the paramedics will come. You do that because you realize that those 
four or five minutes until the paramedic gets to you, you can, can be the difference between life and death for that person, you know, laying in front of you. Almost sounds like what we're talking about with the active shooter, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just, it takes just a little bit of planning, a little bit of effort to, uh, to have a plan and have a response and you can make a big difference for somebody. Yeah. And I'll say, um, since we're firearms trainers, I, what matters is, are you there? Are you armed and are you willing? Now people, well, but they don't have advanced training. You don't need advanced training. Am I pro training? Yeah. Do I make money off training people? Yeah. I'm all for training. But, you know, the Parkland SRO had over 30 years of law enforcement training and he didn't go in. So I, I'd be happier with a fairly untrained person who's there and willing mm -hmm. uh, and uses whatever skill at whatever level it is. I'm all for more training. But even people on our side, people that advocate for concealed carry because it's not risky and it helps solve crime, once you talk about going on to school grounds, oh, God, we can't have that because they don't have advanced training. Well, you don't need advanced training. You know, I don't think the guy that just ended it in the mall in Greenwood, Indiana, had advanced training. My buddy David George, the pastor in Tumwater, who stopped that active shooter in Walmart, he had no advanced training. So I'm all for it. it, pro, it more, the more training, the better. I give active shooter training. Um, but it, what matters is, are you there? Are you armed? And are you willing? Badge or not. And the one thing I point out to people that are worried about schools is think about it. these are the same people that are carrying in church in Walmart, yep. you know, out in public, different things like that. And if you've got a, if you're worried about kids trying to take a gun away from somebody, you should be worried about that kid because obviously that kid could be trying to take it away from a police officer. You could be trying to take away from somebody at Walmart, you know, all these different places that out in public, if and if a kid's that, uh, is that out of control that they might attack somebody to steal something, you know, that could be their wallet. That could be a gun. That could be a, a knife, a pencil, any, any number of things like that. And, you know, there's a behavioral problem there more so than there is a gun problem. In my opinion. Yeah. I call, I call those the boogeyman arguments. They, they don't have a, they don't have a solution that'll help. All they can do is criticize your solutions. So my brother was a uh, high school resource officer the last eight years of his law enforcement career, 6'2", fairly fit. And he'd tell you, if three football players want my gun, they're going to get it. I'm going to put up a good fight, you know. But if three football players work, because they, they know I got a gun and they know where it is, the staff, it should be concealed. Mm -hmm. So it, it's more likely if a student is wanting to steal a, take a gun, they would take it off of a cop where they know than a, than a, than a staff member. But you're exactly right. The staff member carries at the bowling alley, at the Kroger, at the grocery store, at the mall, at Walmart. But magically, when he crosses that magical boundary onto school property, he loses his ability to reason and control himself, and he'll start shooting kids. It, it's that's the that's the extent they'll go to to not do what math clearly shows us is our only chance of a low victim count. Yep, exactly, and that's where I really like your approach of going along, and saying you know if we've got X number of casualties per minute and we start trying to reduce that down we've got us you know what happens with nine on one what happens when we have a school resource officer we've got schools uh, around me that have three to four thousand kids in them and when you go along and think about having a school resource officer is at one end of that school making it to another end of, of the school it would be extremely difficult and and time and time consuming too so unless he's in the room next door, you're going to, you're probably looking at double digits, uh, there also. And then, you know, to your point, the only real for sure way of lowering that the uh, casualty count is to have somebody who's there 
who's within sound, who's willing to act and take decisive, uh, you know, action, action with it, whether that is, you know, with a firearm or with a chair or fire extinguisher, you know, whatever they have, but they have to make decisive actions immediately or else the uh, death count can go extremely high. Yeah. So when I talk to schools and cops and other audiences, what I point out to them several times, a lot of times we tend to learn the wrong lesson because we look at the easier thing and not the real thing. So Parkland, SRO didn't go in, 34 people shot. Well, they were all shot because the SRO was a coward and didn't go in. No, the first 24 would have been shot no matter who the SRO was. Had the SRO been a love child of Chuck Norris and Clint Eastwood, those 24 would have still got shot because the depth, the SRO got to that building right as the 24th person was getting shot. So the, the SRO's action or inaction is not the reason they got a high victim count. They would have got a high victim count anyway. Same thing in Uvalde. Mm-hmm. We are tearing apart the police response, and I've got no problem doing that because we need to, to look at it. But he was in there two minutes and 50 seconds before the – they got into the building pretty aggressively. But he was in there two minutes and 55 seconds before the cops got in there. He shot over 125 rounds before the cops got in there. He shot less than 30 after the cops got in there, and some of those were at the cops. So, yeah, might it have been 31 or 32 instead of 38 had they stormed room 111? Likely, but it was going to be double digits. So let's look at the cops, and if we need to, let's criticize and correct the cop response. But no one is looking at and criticizing the school and Mm -hmm. saying this high victim happened because they had the exact same plan as Stockton, Columbine, Santa Fe, Parkland, Sandy Hook of call 911 and wait. That's why we have double-digit victims at Uvalde, not because of the cops, because he had two minutes and 55 seconds completely unopposed in that classroom to shoot people because their policy was call 911 and late. Mm-hmm. And there were one of the one of the, uh, the uh, teachers at Uvalde was also the wife of one of the police officers, which you could very easily see to where she probably had the firearm skills, probably just from being around her husband and going out shooting with him. Um, um, that's an assumption. I don't know any, any inside information on, but you would think somebody who's been around guns, who's been around that kind of stuff that she would have been allowed to carry and he would have came into her classroom. She would have been able to reduce that down to potentially single digits. Looks to me that their elementary looks smaller than the ones we have here. And ours are pretty small. I think they had enough advanced notice because they saw him shooting out in the parking. They had enough advanced notice. Had anybody had any staff member, janitor, Cook, principal, had any staff member in that building been armed, they had enough time to get them to that entrance. And if he forced got into that school, they could have stopped him at the entrance and kept the victim count, if not zero, extremely low. But call 911 and wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Ed, I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, very great insight on active shooter uh, mindset and how to prepare uh, for it. Because unfortunately, in today's world, it's not. If it's just a matter of when it's going to affect our lives in some some way, some uh, some place around the United States, but um, it's it's good to be prepared for it so that we've got we can take decisive actions and not sit there and uh, wonder about it. And hopefully, we hopefully our listeners can pass it on to their students and uh, get them prepared. Yeah, and appreciate you having me on. If you want to do this again, we can actually delve in specifically of the training aspects of. Prepare mentally, prepare with skill, and prepare with gear. Those th- those three areas that we can work on focusing on this threat, not the other two outside our home. Okay, great. Well, hey, this season we've been asking all our 
instructor uh, or guests to go along and recommend a conference or annual event for other other instructors should check out. Do you have one in mind? Man, if it's a conference, uh, and I would have to say the tactical conference uh, put on by Rangemaster and Tom Gibbons. The problem is that thing's gotten so um, successful and people want in it so badly that this year, it, I think it, for 2023, it went on sale in May of 22, and I think it sold out in four days. Mm-hmm. I, I think he, he, because of parking, because of the size of the facility, he can only have either 300 or 350 people there. And I mean, it sells out that quick, but what you have is three days and the, th- the three days are broken up into two hour blocks and each two hour block, you've got three classroom options, a hand to hand option, a medical option, um, and four or five live fire options. And there's a Craig Douglas usually does a force on force there. I mean, you just a smorgasbord, a buffet of all different things you can do. So it's not like a conference. Well, from eight o'clock to noon is this one speaker and that's all I get. You can choose and pick, uh, it's it, that is a great conference uh, right now. He's putting it on at the Dallas Pistol Club every March. So, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some of the top names, um, you know, Mass AU, Greg Ellifritz, Tom Gibbons, um, Jed Alinsky, and I'm missing people off the top of my head, Craig Douglas, uh, some top people they're teaching for a very yeah. reasonable price. Yeah, it's uh, very, very reasonable. Um, hopefully, one of these days we'll come a little bit closer to the Midwest, um, from down there in uh, Dallas back to Memphis or so, because I'd, I'd like to make it there, but going down Dallas makes it kind of tough from uh, Cincinnati, but I'm going to make it one of these days. But Ed, where can people find out more about um, the last resort firearm training business that you're doing and training that you're offering? Sure. Well, we don't have a, and I say we, it's me and my brother. We don't have a, a webpage. You have a Facebook page. So if you get on Facebook, look for last resort firearms training. That's us. Uh, my email is my name, Ed Monk, E-D-M-O-N-K at AOL.com. My cell number is 870-273-1113. So you can call or text me. And we do uh, consulting with schools, businesses, and churches. We do one, two, and three-day active shooter response classes uh, that includes range uh, training and scenarios on three-dimensional uh, plastic mannequins. And we do a two, two-day active shooter instructor class which used to be twice a year, but now with Uvalde, the demand's gone so high, we're doing like five next year. Wow. Well, that's, that's great. It's uh, good to get people out there to know and understand what the threats are and be able to build effective uh, response plans to them. I appreciate you having me on. This was great. Well, thanks, Ed. And like I said, we will uh, we will have you on again in the future because this is uh, unfortunately not a topic that's going to die out very very soon in my mind. Thanks again. That's a wrap for this episode, and I hope you found some of this information that Ed talked about enlightening, and you can pass it on to your friends. Do you know somebody I should interview? Do you have a topic that is top of mind that you think might be really interesting for other listeners to listen to? Email me your suggestions at ftp at concealedcarry.com. You can also leave us comments on our Facebook page or on our website at firearmtrainerpodcast.com. On our website, you can also listen to all our previous episodes. Visit our sponsors, especially the Farm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. Establishing a business was your first step. Your next step should be getting FTA coverage. Remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off at checkout. We bring this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every fire instructor like you across America that dedicates time and energy and making gun owners more knowledgeable and safer. Stay safe, everyone.
ConcealedCarry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.